welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, University of Colorado sociologist Sonia Majola discusses her work on HIV rates among young African women. She discusses social mechanisms, specifically the entanglement of love and money, which lead to higher rates of HIV death among African women compared to African men. She also considers why money holds a value for African women above and beyond its economic value, specifically pointing to its cultural power to advance women toward modernity. Dr. Majola's new book, which earned the 2015 ASA Sex and Gender Section's Distinguished Book Award, is called Love, Money, and HIV, Becoming a Modern African Woman in the Age of AIDS. Welcome to Office Hours. Today we're here with Sonia Majola talking about AIDS in Africa with your new book, Love, Money, HIV. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And so just to start us off, could you give us a general overview of the book for our listeners who have not read it yet? Great. Well, thanks so much. Um, it's fun to be here in sunny Minnesota in November. So my book, Love, Money, and HIV, is really a book trying to explain why young women have higher rates of HIV compared to young men in in, in Africa. Broadly, there are about 35 million people living with HIV AIDS worldwide, and about 70% of people, uh, of those people, live in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, 58% of the uh, victims are women, so the epidemic is now feminized, and young women have two to nine times higher rates compared to young men. So I was really struck by this because the variation in um, disparities between men and women suggests that something more than biology is going on. Um, And so what I'm basically um, doing, I did a mixed method study. So I combined survey data with qualitative um, interviews and some ethnographic fieldwork to try and figure out what are the social mechanisms that are producing gender life and death outcomes for men and women. Um, and, and, and the basic story or the basic um, uh, uh, dynamics that are happening are young women are having relationships with slightly older or older men um, and ignoring same-age partners. And, and part of that is because older men have a bit more money and can take them out to dinner and buy them nice clothes, and same-age guys are broke. <laughs> and part of the problem is that because love and money are entangled, in order for uh, girls to feel loved or for men to demonstrate love, they have to do, do that through provision. Men who could provide were the only ones who were able to sustain long-term relationships, which were risky for HIV acquisition, because older men have higher rates of HIV compared to young men. The second part of the book is to try and figure out, well, why do young women pursue money? Um, and so in addition to this sort of entanglement of love and money, there's also consumption um, and, 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 and women wanting to consume products in order to become modern women. And so that's the book in a nutshell. Excellent. Uh-huh. Yeah, I heard your talk yesterday and it's really a fascinating topic. Mm-hmm. So how did you become interested in the gender disparities in HIV AIDS? First was I read a paper when I was in grad school and the paper was titled Why Do Young Women Have Higher Rates of HIV Compared to Young Men? Um, And the study was based in Kisumu, Kenya, which is a town 
where my grandmother lives about half an hour away and uh, have cousins who live and work and go to school in the city. And so I realized this wasn't just some random paper. It was a paper about people I you know, potentially knew. It became a really sort of deeply personal paper. Then when I read the findings, it showed that about 30% of 15 to 19-year-old women and 40%, almost 40% of 20 to 24-year-old women were HIV positive. So I was really shocked, especially since at the time the survey was conducted, there was an antiretroviral medication to prolong life. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those young women were going to die in the next six to 10 years. Uh, so I then started thinking, is this just unique to this setting? And I realized when I looked at lots of surveys from different African countries that had HIV um, data, that the disparity or the difference between men and women was actually... Uh, almost every country I could find, um, there were large differences between men and women's HIV rates. So in this, the paper that I read, it was about five times, young women had five times the rates of young men, but those huge variation, two times higher in Zimbabwe, nine times higher in Malawi, five times higher in South Africa. So I wanted to figure out what was going on uh, to sort of produce these differences. And so what makes Sub-Saharan Africa so Mm -hmm. unique for this to happen? Mm -hmm. Why is this pattern taking place there more so than other places? Yeah, I think in the epidemic, one thing that fascinates me about disease is that it often reflects how a society works. It tells you about lines of inequality and privilege. So I'm often reminded of how, you know, when a doctor makes you like fast for 12 hours and then they sort of give you something that acts like a dye and so it sort of shows you what your your body looks like uh you know and 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 I think disease functions in the same way so it sort of tells you who is privileged who is disadvantaged um in in a given society so so I'm always interested in who gets sick and who doesn't as as a way of telling me how a society works in the case of um sub-saharan Africa what it tells us is, is is something about sexual networks and sexual dynamics in that setting it's a largely heterosexual epidemic, unlike the epidemic in the U.S., where it's predominantly men who have sex with men and gay men who are affected by um, HIV/AIDS. Though there is a rapidly growing, um, um, ri- rapidly growing risk among women as well in the states. And so the heterosexual transmission suggests then that we're looking at everyday relationships between uh, men and women. Um, especially marriage relationships between men and women, which is actually a, a, a fairly big um, risk factor for HIV, uh, and the dynamics of those relationships. So it makes perfect sense that young women will want men who can provide, especially if that they're men they're going to marry. Uh, and so what we're essentially seeing is an epidemic that reflects both how relationships uh, between men and women work, but also how um, uh, concurrent relationships are also a part of the puzzle. So when people have more than one relationship at a time. Uh, so so what we find is that there are more concurrent relationships in, in, in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa where people have two long-term relationships, for example, within polygamy. Whereas in the States, people tend to have more serial monogamy. So one partner at a time, um, whether they're gay or straight. Uh, and so the risk then looks very different in, 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 in both settings. Um, and, and I think it's spread much farther and faster because 
relationships and, and marriage relationships were both uh, sort of a part of the, the large-scale transmission. So can you tell me a little more about the modernity piece mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the book mm -hmm. and what that means yeah. and for these women? Yeah. So I was trying to understand why young women were uh, wanted money. Because a lot of times in the, the context of relationships, they would mention that all their partners are, you know, attractive because, you know, uh, you know, the, as, as I mentioned earlier, they're able to take them out to dinner, buy them nice clothes, and etc. And so I was trying to get at, well, why do they want money? What, what, is, what is the appeal of money? And I realized that what they were really doing was pursuing modernity. In order to become a modern woman, I realized that, you know, women had to consume. So they had to buy, uh, beauty had become commodified in this setting. So now to be beautiful, you have to wear makeup and you have to have, you know, a particular kind of lotion that you buy and you use sanitary towels as opposed to rags and you buy soap as opposed to make your, making your own soap. This was especially exacerbated among girls in school where schoolgirls were supposed to be modern. You know, schoolgirls were supposed to distinguish themselves from girls who didn't go to school, who had dropped out of school. Um, but unfortunately, to be modern, you needed to consume and you needed money. And if your parents didn't consider those kinds of things needs or necessities, then you have to choose between being a consumer, consuming woman through relationships or not being a consuming woman at all, and, and therefore not being able to, to be modern, to do modernity. So the uh, boyfriends enable these women mm -hmm. to achieve this modernity, mm -hmm. in other words. Yeah, and, and it was complicated because it wasn't just a sort of straight-up exchange of product. You know, I, you know, I have a relationship with you and you give me products, but because it was bound up with, with love. Mm -hmm. So if, 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 if a boyfriend loves you, and is concerned about you, then he's going to provide for you. So if he doesn't provide, then he doesn't care. Uh, and so because of this logic then, um, a, a boy who could not provide could not be in a long-term relationship because a girl would think he doesn't love me and he doesn't care for me and he's not concerned. And so it became really complicated uh, when the two things, love and money, became entangled. Um, so can we talk about method for a second? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm a new... Mm -hmm. Becoming an ethnographer, mm -hmm. and in either your qualitative or your quantitative mm -hmm. part of the book, since you mm -hmm. do mixed methods, what was the biggest challenge, either mm -hmm. in collecting or analyzing data? Yeah. Fieldwork is is really challenging. Um, I think both, you know, be, because it requires so much of uh, the researcher as a human being. I think that's sort of one difference. Uh, I think it, it's both shocking encountering HIV statistics with survey work as it is in field work, but I think the shock is very different when you feel personally involved. So it was one thing, for example, to produce statistics on HIV rates among young women or read papers about high HIV rates among young women, but something else entirely to interview a 16-year-old girl who's HIV positive in the field. And so it was an emotionally challenging project. Um, in the book, I also talk about the density of death. There was a lot of death happening, especially if you imagine what a 30% HIV prevalence rate in the absence of medication to prolong life looks like on a daily basis. So people are going to funerals every week, and that was normal. Uh, furniture stores had essentially become coffin stores. 
um, the, you know, because coffins were more profitable than sofas. And so the whole landscape was marked, marked by this everydayness of death that made it very difficult to do fieldwork. And, and in fact, uh, it sort of took its toll on me. And certainly by the end of the end of fieldwork, it was it was almost too much, I think, to deal with. I think the other thing is fieldwork requires a lot of patience. It's not, in especially in a sort of instant gratification society where you send a text and expect a text back or an email and we're used to things happening fast. Doing fieldwork requires a sort of slow, dogged patience, both with oneself, learning how to do interviews, learning how to do fieldwork, building rapport with people, gaining access to sites, and then also patience um, in things coming together. Because I found certainly all the projects I've worked on, the beginning is always very confusing. Or a story I think is clear early on becomes completely complicated uh, as, as a project unfolds or people don't show up to interviews or they, you know, uh, you know, uh, or, or, or you, ha- you know, people lie to you and you have to figure out what you're going to do to, to change plans if things don't go the way you had hoped. And so I think it requires a lot of, uh, a lot of patience and a lot of perseverance um, and, and a lot of, I think, giving of oneself. So I think uh, my fieldwork required a lot of compassion, learning not to judge people, so especially the, the area of HIV AIDS is one that's so open to, there's a lot of stigma, a lot of judgment, and a lot of uh, neglect and ignoring of people. Uh, And so I realized that I wasn't just doing interviews, but uh, I was also listening to people who are often not, you know, hadn't been listened to or hadn't been heard from. Um, And so all of those things made made fieldwork really challenging. There seems to be this really big contrast between the prevalence of death with this idea of the modern woman, how do those kind of fit together or butt mm-hmm. up against each other? Mm-hmm. So they seemed, in the, certainly in the context of fieldwork, entirely separate things. So one of the shocking things for me when I first arrived was uh, a, a sort of encapsulated in a phrase that a respondent you know, mentioned, they know but they ignore. And so... It was very clear because the landscape was saturated with this sort of density of death. People knew about HIV AIDS. They had buried somebody they knew. They were probably going to a funeral of someone they knew next week dying of HIV AIDS. Um, When I asked young people who they saw dying of HIV AIDS, they would say young women. Surveys in the area, when I looked at the demographic and health surveys, suggested that over 90% of young people knew about HIV and knew how to prevent it. It was challenging to, to sort of think about the fact that people already know the facts about HIV AIDS, but are nonetheless um, uh, making choices that put them at really high risk for acquiring HIV. And, and so I found with, with girls pursuing modernity through consumption in the context of relationships with providing men, that they were essentially um, gambling, <laughs> that they would be able to pursue modernity without getting HIV AIDS. But HIV wasn't even part of how they thought about relationships. It didn't, it didn't come up in the context of partner choice or why they would leave a particular partnership. It was more about you know, whether they liked the guy and 
whether you know he was pursuing them whether he could you know provide as opposed to whether they thought he was a risk for hiv mm-hmm. it, it was puzzling to see this almost complete disjunct between how people picked um, relationships and the reality of hiv aids in the setting mm-hmm. yeah and i remember from yesterday in your talk that phrase they know but they ignore carries over to the parents of mm-hmm. these young women as well. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, so, so what I said then was um, someone had asked, well, you know, where are the parents in this? Why aren't the parents sanctioning relationships that young women are having? And I had, uh, and, and I mentioned that there seemed to be a sort of don't ask, don't tell policy where, uh, Parents would express outrage, like when I asked them or asked district officials, they would all say, these relationships are terrible. But in practice, uh, if a young woman brought a gift that uh, a boyfriend had given her, they would all be really, you know, happy and thrilled because they thought, oh, this is a generous boyfriend, thinking, you know, this, he'll probably be a generous husband. Uh, you know, and so the logic of having a man who can provide fit very well into this framework of, having a husband who can help not only you, but also your family uh, as a whole. There wasn't a long gap between um, when people first had sex and when they got married. Uh, and so parents would often see see it in that context. And so this so is the interesting ambivalence going on in the community uh, between the sort of outrage at the relationship, but the sort of praise or even acceptance if, if, a, if a girl brought you know, gifts home mm-hmm. or had a generous boyfriend. Yeah. So does that time frame from first sex to mm-hmm. marriage mm-hmm. change with girls going to school? Mm-hmm. This is prevalent, you said, mostly among schoolgirls. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem to have changed that much. And when I looked at the, the, the demographic and health survey data, there wasn't as big uh, uh, a difference between the age at first sex and the age at first marriage uh, as they had been in the past. So it was still something like uh, a three-year uh, gap. And, and part of that is because so many girls don't complete high school. So there were really high dropout rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I suspect that part of what is, what is going on, um, we're, we're in some ways limited by data, because the survey data, because it's cross-sectional. So we're not following young women throughout. And so uh, we're really seeing the girls who survive or the girls who stay in school. But a lot of girls drop out of school. Uh, and so the marriage age remains fairly young. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that means that essentially uh, the, 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 uh, the girls who stay in school marry later, but not that much later um, than the girls who drop out of school. What kind of impact do you see your work mm-hmm. having on global women's health? Mm-hmm. So that's a really large question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the needs of, the needs of women vary uh, quite quite vastly from setting to setting. Um, and what I'd hoped to achieve in this particular project was to draw attention to the fact that women have the highest, you know, high rates of HIV and are particularly vulnerable to HIV. Um, and I think there's been a lot of focus on men. Uh, I think rightly so, especially in the states. Um, because they've had the predominant number of cases of HIV-AIDS. But um, 
there hasn't been as much attention, I think, on women and young women in particular, and the fact that young women are especially vulnerable to, to HIV. I think age is important because it's very different getting HIV at, say, age 30 um, in a setting where life expectancy is 40 or 50 versus getting HIV when you're 15 or 16, um, where HIV is going to define essentially all of your adult life. And so I think the more focus that's sort of paid to making sure young women don't get HIV um, and, and, and young women are, are being paid attention to the better. Uh, you know, many young women, for example, will only find out about uh, uh, or get access to the pill when they're in antenatal clinics expecting their first child. You know, so a lot of, you know, life-saving information happens way too late. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of women are not aware of the risk environment. Um, that they live in. And so in the book, I have a table showing the HIV prevalence rates for, for men and women from age 15 to 34. So I think that that sort of information would be much more useful than simply telling girls not to have sex, which is what the message that they get is, you know, abstinence, being faithful, and condom use. But it's very hard for um, uh, girls to abstain in the context of relationships where uh, you know, uh, providing men expect sexual relationships or um, negotiating condom use when using a condom essentially means I don't trust you and I don't love you. Um, and, and, and so the, the sort of standard prevention messaging is not as effective for young women as, as perhaps just simply telling them what the risk environment um, so what the HIV um, uh, rates are for people of different ages so they can respond to that sort of information. Uh, and so that's what I'm hoping um, is, is, is a sort of long-term impact on the, of, of the book is a focus on young women and young women's health in particular. Can you talk a little more about how trust is tied up in condom usage mm -hmm. and leverage around yeah. using them? What's really interesting with condoms is that it's, it's, it's a technology that is – in, in my view, at least, especially well geared for the one-night stand. And so, in fact, people who did use condoms in the setting would say, it's easy to use a condom the first time, the second time, but the third time, you know, you start wondering, well, what does it mean to use a condom, right? And, and especially in this context, you know, one respondent would say, you know, do you think I'm a prostitute? Because the implication is that, we're using a condom because we think that someone is being unfaithful in this relationship. Mm -hmm. So it really clashes with the idea of love or the idea of trust. In fact, not using a condom is a demonstration of trust. Uh, and, and so I think that the, the issue of the meaning of condoms is, is something that often isn't um, taken into account. And the risk for HIV is, is in the long-term relationships. It's very hard to get HIV. It's like a one in a thousand chance per time that someone has sex. So I think the, 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 the misconception is that, you know, the one night stand is risky, so let's use a condom, which is true for a lot of sexually transmitted infections. But for HIV, it's the repeated contact or repeated exposure to HIV that puts somebody at risk. So that's why marriage is a risk factor for HIV and long-term relationships are riskier than short-term relationships. Um, and so I think that's the that's the challenge with condom use in the context of an HIV epidemic. Yeah, it seems so counterintuitive yeah. to how other STIs are transmitted. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and so and, and which have much higher um, uh, uh, transmission 
probabilities than HIV. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier to get things like chlamydia and herpes simplex virus than it is to get HIV. Mm-hmm. So you've written this great book mm-hmm. about wonderful, well, not wonderful, but about a really mm-hmm. important topic, mm-hmm. won some awards for your book. What's next? Do you have any other exciting projects on the horizon? So I'm working on a couple of new projects. Um, The first one is um, looking at the epidemic in Washington, D.C. In uh, 2011, um, Washington, D.C. had one of the worst epidemics in the country, um, the highest HIV-AIDS case rate uh, in in the country. Um, And the book is, my current book project is basically examining why uh, HIV became so... uh, problematic in Washington, D.C., and why African-Americans in particular were affected uh, by the epidemic. Um, And then a second project I'm working on is looking at HIV among middle-aged and older adults in rural South Africa. I think there's been a lot of focus on on young people, but as antiretroviral therapy gets rolled out, increasing numbers of people are now aging with HIV. Uh, But what we also found, uh, a, a survey was done in rural South Africa, that found that about 25% of people in their 50s, 10% in their 60s, 5% in their 70s were HIV positive. And they only started rolling out antiretroviral medication in 2010 in this particular setting, suggesting that there's not just um, people aging with HIV who acquired HIV at younger ages, but there's also new acquisitions. In other words, grandma's having sex. Um, <laughs> the problem is no one is aiming prevention messaging at grandma. Um, mm-hmm. And so we want to figure out why um, older adults are at risk for HIV, what are the individual and also structural factors shaping their HIV risk. Uh, so those are some of the projects I'm working on right now. I'm really looking forward to reading those when they come out as well. Thank you you for stopping by Office Hours. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Sanyu Majola discussing her award-winning new book, Love, Money, and HIV, Becoming a Modern African Woman in the Age of AIDS. It was hosted by Sarah Catherine Billups and produced by Ryan Larson at the Society Pages from the University of Minnesota. You can find old episodes of Office Hours along with all kinds of great written new content on our website, thesocietypages.org.